Let's go ahead for the sake of time because I want to leave some time at the end to discuss the chapter today. We're going to be discussing the doctrine of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. It's a short chapter on a big doctrine. So I hope that we don't spend a whole lot of time just on the content itself. We'll be able to look at some important scriptures together and try to try to think about the confession in light of the scriptures and then try to think about the scriptures in light of the confession. But to that end, let's just read through it together, beginning in paragraph one. And as I read, you're going to see in your handout there up at the top, you're going to see really kind of three main parts to the confession. You're going to see the origin of sin in the first paragraph. You're going to see in paragraphs two, three, and four a threefold consideration of the results of sin, specifically related to its universal condemnation of all men everywhere, of its personal transmission, how is it that the sin of our original parents is spread to all men everywhere, and of its universal corruption, that is uh, the motivations, desires, and nature from which all of our sinful actions come. And then finally, and wisely and pastorally, it's going to ask in the fifth paragraph, well, what about sin in the believer? How are we to think about indwelling sin? We've been saved by the grace of Christ. We've been, we've been declared righteous in him. Our sins have been forgiven, and yet I still sin. And so we might call, for instance, sin in the believer, paragraph 5, the Romans 7 paragraph, if you would. If you're a post-conversionist view of Romans 7, then you understand what I mean. If you aren't, well, then you're wrong, but we love you still. <laughs> Paragraph 1. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof, Yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve and then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it according to his own glory." Paragraph 2, our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, and all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Paragraph 3, they being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. Being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free." Paragraph 4. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Paragraph 5. The corruption of nature during this life does remain in those who are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. 
You notice at the very beginning of paragraph 1 that the confession takes us right into Genesis 1 and 2. And it's there that we see, first of all, man's created condition. That he was created, first of all, without sin. He was upright and perfect. No sin had yet come into the world. His fellowship with God had not yet been broken. In all of his faculties, he is able to live a life unto God just as he was created to do. And that life lived unto God is a life that is meant to be lived in the context of a covenant. Now, you don't see the, the, you don't see the, the phrase covenant of works anywhere here in paragraph 1, but you do see all of the necessary components. You see, first of all, a covenantal condition. That is that there is a righteous law that is given to man in this created condition. You see, secondly, that there's a promised reward for obedience. Namely, that he would have life if he kept it. And then thirdly, notice that there are warning or sanctions upon its disobedience. That is death upon the breach. And so we find all of the key components of the covenant of works that we've recently considered. That God is related to all mankind for all time in the context of covenant. He made this covenant with our original parents. In Genesis 2, you remember, having given Adam dominion over all things, placed him in the garden, Genesis 2, to keep it and to work it. He was to be a king and a priest and a prophet, ruling, protecting God's garden temple, and of speaking God's word as God revealed it to him, to his wife and to all of his posterity. That he was placed in the middle of the garden in the context of this covenant with a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so having already, by virtue of his creation, having uh, the moral law written on his heart, God now gives him a positive law. Now you remember what we talked about last week in creation. It was in, in, in chapter 4, paragraph 3. That there are, in the context of covenants, positive laws, laws that are posited. They're not inherently moral, such that when the conditions of the covenant change or the covenant is abrogated, that positive law is no longer binding. So, for instance, circumcision is a positive law. There's nothing inherently moral to cutting it off, so to speak. That's just biblical language. But as soon as God puts it in the context of a covenant, he says, if you don't cut it off to Abraham, Abraham 17, I'm going to cut you off. Now, that positive law, not inherently moral, now has a moral component to it. It is a command that is given in the context of a covenant. And that's exactly what we have here. He gave him a law. That law is referring to that command that you see further down in the paragraph. And that command is you can eat from any tree the knowledge, or you can eat any tree in the entire garden, but there's one tree that you cannot eat from, and that is the tree the knowledge of good and evil. And he set before Adam a tree, a promissory tree, a tree of life, such that if you obey this, I'll confirm you in your condition and you'll enjoy eternal life for me entering into my rest. Of course, the penalty for disobeying God's positive law, as well as transgressing that moral law in the disobeying of the positive law, 
taking that which doesn't belong to him, not worshiping God as he is supposed to do, not honoring the family, both his wife and his progeny. In all of these ways, in the taking of the tree that was forbidden, he broke the law that was written on his heart, that moral law, and yet also in the doing broke God's positive law. Notice what it says down at the bottom. In the context of this covenantal relationship, it says, yet even though he was created in this way, he did not long abide in this honor. Satan subdued, that is exercised in a sense, dominion over Eve. See that cross-reference down there, 2 Corinthians 11.3, she was deceived from the simplicity of the gospel, Paul says. And then she seduced Adam, and Adam, without any compulsion, did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given to them in eating the forbidden fruit. Now, when it says here that Adam did so willfully, what it's saying is the devil didn't make him do it, didn't make him do it, and his wife didn't make him do it. Of course, you remember how Genesis 2 went. As soon as, he, as soon as they saw that they were naked, they immediately began blame shifting. They began self-justifying. They began deceiving. You remember from our study in the covenant of works, don't you, that the, that the serpent came in and he was crafty. And then later on, after they're deceived by the serpent, they see that they are naked. And the Hebrew word that's translated naked has the same root as the Hebrew word translated crafty. And in Genesis 3, it's a play on words to show that this, that this man and this woman created in the image of God in their sin now bear the image of the serpent. And the first thing they do is the very thing that the serpent does. And they turn around and attempt to deceive God. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. Well, the confession simply affirms what we know to be true from Genesis 3, that Adam did so freely and willfully. It wasn't ultimately Eve's fault. He's guilty, and he's guilty according to the covenant sanctions that were placed on him. Such that in eating the forbidden fruit, as we'll see in paragraph 2, universal condemnation comes to all men. Now, I want you to notice at the end of paragraph 1 this phrase. God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. Now, we've addressed this in previous weeks in chapter 3 on God's decree. It says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. What is included in the all things? Two chapters later, chapter 5, the confession summarizes scriptural teaching this way. God's holy counsel extends itself even to the first fall. And so this is how we read the confession left to right, side to side. Previous doctrines laying foundations for later doctrines. So when we see here that God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order to do it on his own, we should immediately pop into our mind God's decree and of God's providence. All that God has decreed from the void of the foundation of the world and his ability in himself to accomplish all that he's decreed according to his own power and of his providence in upholding and guiding all things according to his decree. And so this is to say that on the one hand, Adam freely did what he did. God's not responsible for Adam's sin. 
And yet God is still sovereign over all of these things according to his decree. This is why we got into the weeds of first cause and second causes. So you can go back to those, that audio and listen to that. Those first few, especially from, from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 5, from the doctrine of God all the way to God's providence, God, decree, creation, providence are all a unit that should be taken together, and that is the Everest of the confession. It all gets easier from there, but it's so foundational for everything that follows. In fact, if you look at the end of your packet, you'll see just an example of how you might read the confession from side to side. Do you have that there? On the very back? You can do this on your own. I highlighted some things. You can see from chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, those foundational doctrines, how they influence and affect or how they shape, how all these doctrines all fit together like a body of divinity as we think about fallen sin. And so what you might do, for instance, is, is take all of the bolded things that you see there, maybe even other things, and, and then read chapter 6 in light of them and see where you see some of the same phrases, some of the same categories, some of the same languages and doctrines pop up. And you'll be able to see that each one of these chapters in the confession, it's so remarkable, are not isolated marbles in a bag, as it were, that you could just add or, or take out at will without affecting or disrupting everything else. It's an organic body of divinity in which each part is dependent on the others. We talked about this when we first started. It doesn't mean that every body part's equally important, right? A pinky finger is not as important as a brain and a heart. You chop off the pinky finger and you're gonna be less effective, but you're still gonna live. You take out the brain or the heart and and you're dead. Chapters 2 through 5 on the doctrine of God is head and heart. You lose that, you lose everything, right? We'll get to eschatology later down the road, or we'll get to other things related to, to public worship and things like that. Those are pinkies and, and ACLs. You can blow out an ACL, and it might wobble a little bit, but you'll be okay, right? You're going to make it to glory. You, you deny these, and you deny the gospel, right? So just a reminder on how the confession works. It's an organic body of, uni uh, of divinity. Okay, so that's paragraph one. But then we move directly into paragraph two. Paragraph one, man created in covenant. Adam breaks covenant. He sins, transgresses the law that's given to him. And then what happens? Universal condemnation. And in paragraph two, fourfold consequences are going to be considered. You're going to see, first of all, that Adam and Eve lost their original righteousness. See that there at the beginning of the paragraph. They were once able not to sin, but now they are, not un they are unable to not sin. Does that make sense? They can't not sin because of a new nature that they've received as a result of the fall. They've lost their original righteousness. Not only that, secondly, notice what else is true. They've lost communion with God. God walked with them in the cool of the garden, but God in that, in that temple sanctuary where he dwelled with his people cannot dwell where sin exists. It must be holy. It was Adam's job to keep it holy. Remember, the, the language of the priests under the old covenant was if anybody would come and, and make God's 
tabernacle unholy. It was the job of the priests to kill him. And the language that's used is that they are to keep and to guard, to minister and to guard the temple, to keep it holy. In other words, if any snake slithers into, the, into God's temple, you are to crush its head. Adam failed to do it. And so communion with God is lost. His temple has been corrupted. He no longer dwells with man on earth in that way. And he will... In a typological and an incomplete way, under the old covenant, through the tabernacle and the temple, and then he will much more fully in Christ. That's why the church is called the temple of God. The dwelling place is restored in Christ. Communion with God is restored in Christ, but it's lost in the garden. Thirdly, notice this, death and sin spread to all mankind, and we in them whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin. And then finally, notice every aspect of humanity is corrupted by sin. It says, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. The heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah says. Genesis 6, 5, man saw that, uh, God saw that man's heart was set on wickedness constantly. This is a brief summary of the doctrine that we might call total depravity. We need to spend just a second here. We touched on this just last week in, uh, in Q&A, but I want to touch on it a little bit more deeply here. What we mean by total depravity, th there's always confusion here. Total depravity means what it says here. Every faculty and part of soul and body has been corrupted by sin. On the one hand, you have a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian view that would say only some parts of man have been corrupted by sin. Other parts, like man's will, has not been corrupted and is still pure in such a way that apart from regenerating grace can do things to the glory of God and obedience to God. That'd be a Pelagian view. It's what Augustine was so concerned with rejecting according to the scriptures. But on the other extreme, you have perhaps more susceptible in our own camp would be what we would call absolute depravity. This idea not merely that every faculty or that every part, soul and body of humanity is corrupted, but that humanity cannot at any time do anything good, but only ever always does evil constantly. This is not only biblically untenable, but it is experientially impossible. Society would, 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 would cease to exist if absolute depravity was upheld. The institution of divine government, or not institution of divine government, institution of civil government is based on the reality that the image of God, though corrupted, has not been lost, that the law of God has been written on all men's hearts such that Gentiles operate and do the law even though they don't have the law. And as a result of God's common grace in these ways, Society is able to be ordered. Good is able to be rewarded. Sin is able to be restrained, always imperfectly. Some societies are more wicked than others. And yet, even in the most wicked societies, there will be semblances of good and justice 
and those kinds of things. And it's all God's common grace for the stabilizing of his creation until all of his gospel promises are brought to bear. That's what we studied in the Noahic covenant or the common grace covenant. And so absolute depravity posits that no good could possibly ever at any time come from man. What total depravity is actually stating, rather, is that as a couple of things. There's no part of us, body or soul, faculty or part, that has not been corrupted by sin. There's nothing in us that is upright and perfect as it was in Adam at creation. That every part of us is corrupted from birth. We'll get to that in just a minute. And yet, at the same time, because of God's common grace and law written on our hearts, non-Christian, unregenerate firemen will throw themselves into burning buildings to save babies. Men will jump in front of buses to save strollers from getting ran over. Men who deny the one true God on the one hand will inexplicably, though really not inexplicably if you understand the scriptures, will uphold laws that are really true and just. We had a sitting president now that is wicked beyond measure in many ways, and yet still will do or say things that are or that can reward good and restrain evil. The president sitting before him was inexplicably evil and wicked in a number of ways, and yet managed to pass legislation that served good ends. It wasn't because of regeneration. It was because of God's common grace in a fallen culture, in a fallen world, where every faculty of man is corrupted, and yet according to God's common grace, he is still able to do good. So that's what it means, first of all, that, he's, that, that good is possible, but not good under the glory of God. That unregenerate man does no good thing unto God's glory, though he's capable of doing good things. It also means, just by implication, remember what we studied, uh, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Get to Romans 1. Talks about the things that God has made. What does it display? God's power and his invisible attributes. What is included in what God has made? Mankind above all. Such that even in the height of our corruption and total depravity, we are still God's creation in some way that demonstrates in our rational capacity, in our creativity, in the way that we organize society, in the way that we're able to operate as moral beings while yet corrupted. In all of these ways, semblances of the image of God in his creation testify to the goodness of God. And so we need to reject, on the one hand, a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian view that believes that there are some parts that were not corrupted by the fall, that we have no connection to original parents, that we deny original sin. And yet, on the other hand, we need to reject such an absolutist view of total depravity that would, taken to its logical end, mean the world would implode on itself. God, in his common grace, through civil government and other means, rewards good, restrains evil to, to stabilize this world until all of his gospel promises are finished. So total depravity does not mean absolute depravity, but it does mean that there is nothing upright and perfect in us. Every aspect of us has been corrupted. 
Hold on just a second. We'll do it at the end. Hold on to questions. We're almost there. Paragraph three. They being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed. We're now moving from universal corruption to personal transmission. And this is important in the paragraph because we have two things that are important. We have imputed guilt. See that there? You've got Adam and Eve, his wife, through whom all humanity came. Adam is the federal head, standing in the room instead of all mankind, and the guilt of sin committed at the garden. See paragraph 1, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, was imputed, credited to us. It's what imputation means. And so we see, first of all, there's imputed guilt, but we see, second of all, there's a corrupted nature, and those are different things. Let me show you from the scriptures. With regards to imputed guilt, go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Paul has just got done talking about how not only Gentiles but Jews are condemned under the law apart from faith in Christ. That only in Christ are the ungodly justified by faith. And then he, string, he, he, he strings together a series of adjectives. We were weak, chapter 5, verse 6, that we were uh, sinners, chapter 5, verse 8, and then we were his enemies. How did we come to become so weak, so sinful, and at such enmity with God under his wrath? Beginning of verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Here's what he's saying. The law was given to Moses. Death existed prior to the law given to Moses. The death that spread to all men prior to the giving of the law is proof that the law is not what causes sin. Sin was present in the world from Adam to the law because death was present in the world from Adam to the law. You got it? That's the argument so far. But then it says an important phrase at the end of verse 14, that Adam was a type, a pattern, a blueprint of one who was to come. In his creation, in his covenant, and even in the pattern of his imputation, he's a pattern of a greater Adam. This is what he says, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one man's or one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned or exercised dominion through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign or have dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and you can put in brackets, all men in Adam, which is all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, in brackets, in Christ. All those who are in Adam 
are condemned by one trespass, legally. All those who are in Christ are justified legally by one act of righteousness. Verse 19, for by the one man's disobedience, the many were made righteous. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we were studying this in verse by verse, one of the things that we wanted to point out was a good way to read your Bible was to start with Romans 5 and then go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That if Adam is a type of the one to come, then we want to start with Christ and reverse engineer to Adam because all that is true of Christ with regards to how justification and its benefits are enjoyed by those who are in Christ by faith, then the same must also be analogously true for all of those who are in Adam. So just as the Lord Jesus Christ has a covenant in which the blessings of his one act of, of righteousness are bestowed, so there is a covenant in which the condemnation of one uh, act of disobedience is bestowed on all those who are in Adam. Just as in Christ by faith we are legally counted righteous, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us through, that's what it means to be justified. So then in Adam, our sin nature and our legal condemnation was imputed to us in Adam. All of the Bible is about two Adams. This is the federal theology that, that, Adam, or that Paul is putting forward that all of humanity hangs on the belts of one Adam or the other. And all of humanity in Adam has Adam's legal guilt by virtue of his one trespass imputed to them such that death and sin and thus condemnation legally reigns over all men. But in Christ, by faith, through his one act of righteousness, that is the totality of his active and passive obedience, his perfect life and obedience to the law and his death, exhausting the curses of the law, that righteousness now is imputed to us and we are given new life, forgiven of our sin, legal condemnation in Adam, done away with, justified as if we've never sinned and as if we've always obeyed. Christ is our righteousness. Does that make sense? So on the one hand, we, are, we have imputed guilt. This is... Paul's argument from Romans 5. Adam's guilt was imputed to us. Sin came into the world through one man. Death, that is the sign of condemnation through sin. Death spread to all men because all sin. Not merely in the likeness of Adam, but they sin because they are in Adam. But secondly, we not only have imputed guilt, but we have a corrupted nature. See that there? And corrupted nature is conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. Ordinary generation just means from one generation to the next, through the, or, through the normal means provided by God within families to produce babies. You got it? Okay. Don't need to have that talk with you? I hope not. Genesis 5. Genesis chapter 5. Remember what the Bible said in Genesis chapter 1 when God created Adam and Eve. He said, let us make man in our image. To use the language of the confession, let us make him upright and perfect, righteous and holy. 
But now look at the language in Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That's Genesis 1. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and he fathered his son in his, you see it here, in his own likeness after his image named Seth. Now here's the problem. What happened to Seth? End of verse 5, or end of, what happened to Adam? End of verse 5, he died. And then what happened to Seth? End of verse 7, or verse 8, he died. And do you see that phrase repeated? He died, he died, he died, he died, he died. The fact of the imputation of Adam's guilt is seen in the conveyance of a corrupted nature leading unto physical death for all mankind everywhere. That we are all in Adam's image. Does that make sense? We are legally condemned by one act or one transgression, and we are physically destined to die as a result of the curse due to sin. That we have not only imputed guilt, but a corrupted nature. Here's why the gospel is really good news. What is it that turns imputed guilt on its head? It is justification. It is imputed righteousness. What is it that turns our corrupted nature on its head? It's not justification, it's sanctification. That we have a new nature whereby we are now progressively able to become holy as God is holy by his spirit through his word. And so in the gospel, the blessings and the benefits that come to us by Christ, imputed guilt is erased through justification and the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and our corrupted nature is overturned, though indwelling sin still exists, we'll see that in paragraph 5, and we are now able to live in such a way that we not only do good things, but we do good things according to God's word for God's glory and the power of God's spirit, beginning with repentance and faith in the gospel. The gospel turns upside down the consequences of man's fall in Adam. Do you see that? That's why that language in paragraph 5, if you look down, although it be through Christ pardoned, that is justified, and mortified, that is set apart for holiness or sanctified. Sin has been put to death. It has no power over us. And so imputed guilt and corrupted nature is turned upside down by the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why it says at the end of paragraph 3 that we are, and it just cobbles together scriptural language, conceived in sin, by nature children of wrath, servants of sin, subject of death, and all other miseries. They're saying all these biblical phrases that you see, and they're footnoted down below, these are all just describing in different ways this spiritual reality that we see in the Scripture. These are the this is the necessary inference that flows from cobbling all these Scriptures together. And it includes all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Look at this. Unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. So now we have here in chapter 6, in one clause... Setting up for everything that follows beginning in chapter 7 all the way through chapter 18 of the confession of a covenant, of a mediator, and of all of the benefits and blessings that come in the context of that covenant through that mediator, 
justification, adoption, sanctification, and so on and so forth. That's setting the table for the heart of the confession and the heart of our doctrine. So we move then from personal transmission in paragraph three to in paragraph four, universal corruption. It's just saying that all of our sin ultimately arises from this inherited sin nature. Whereas paragraph two addresses total depravity, paragraph four addresses total inability. Total inability to obey God. Total inability to, to willingly choose anything that would be to God's glory. Totally unable to do anything that would be from love for God. We need new hearts for that. And yet left to ourselves in Adam, we are spiritually unable to love and please him. In other words, using Jesus' analogies, the root of the tree and the fruit of the tree are always organically connected. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees become good trees through the regenerative life-giving power of the gospel. Okay? This becomes more clear. Just look at the way that the confession and the paragraph and free will elaborates on this. Go to chapter 9 in your confession. Remember, we read it left to right. Everything builds on itself. Paragraph 2, man in a state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was mutable so that he might fall from it. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability to will any good. How does it qualify? Any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is unable by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. That's the doctrine of total inability. That apart from God's regenerating grace, though man may do good by God's common grace, for the restraint of sin and the rewarding of good in the world, stabilizing his creation until all of his gospel promises are fulfilled, man cannot do anything good to save himself. He cannot do anything from love for God unless God in sovereign mercy and grace acts upon him in the power of his spirit to give him a new heart. And from that new heart comes new desires that now respond to the free call of the gospel to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a new heart given by the spirit will do just that. You can only teach all converts and all nations to obey all that Christ has commanded if they have new hearts by the power of the gospel. Because man is totally unable to do it. Finally, what about sin in the believer? That even though the penalty of sin is paid by Christ's atoning work and the power of sin is broken by our union with him, the presence of indwelling sin nevertheless remains in the believer through life prior to glorification. I hope I don't have to prove this paragraph. We'll just start with George, and you can give an example from today, and we'll just go around the room. Be easy to prove. But it remains in those that are regenerated. And although it be in Christ, pardoned, that is, you are declared righteous in Christ, forgiven of your sins, and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. What it's guarding against is a kind of perfectionism, 
or of the error that we see in 1 John, where now that we've been forgiven of our sin in Christ, we think that no more sin dwells in us. Our sin has not only been forgiven, but requires ongoing forgiveness. Not for right standing before God, but so that that our countenance before God and his countenance before us might be restored and we might be sanctified. In that regard, repentance is not just something we do once at the beginning of the Christian life. It's something that we do throughout our life, in this life. But look at that phrase, the corruption of this nature during this life. That is a sweet three words. Because what it's saying or implying is that there's going to come a day, even though the power of sin has been broken and the penalty of sin has been paid for, there is coming a day when the very presence of sin will be done away with once and for all. See also paragraphs 31 and 32 on the end of the age and the resurrection. So what do we do? We put sin to death by the Spirit of God. It still dwells in us. We don't deny it. We acknowledge it. We confess it. We slay it. And we help one another do that. As we put ourselves under God's means of grace to that end, the preaching of the word and and prayer and, and the sacraments and communion with the saints, we aim to help one another do just that. So it's a practical doctrine.